0: Well, please take your Bible and open to the book of Ephesians, and this morning we come to a text that's very practical, it's penetrating, that really opens up our heart and lets us see ourselves in the mirror of God's Word in a way that I trust we can make adjustments because of, and we'll be looking at the subject of prayer. The title for today is Pray Like This. And as you can see, it's part one. It will take us two studies to get through this passage in verses 15 to 23. Let me read that for you. Ephesians chapter one, verse 15. Paul says, after that long sentence in the Greek, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you. While making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. of Him who fills all in all. As I said, for our study today we're, and next time, we're going to be talking about prayer. I have to begin by admitting something, with an admission. There's a great degree of intimidation and personal conviction as we begin. There's an old saying among preachers if you ever want to guarantee ge- uh, and generate conviction in any Christian audience, preach on prayer or evangelism or both at the same time. Because no one prays like they want to, no one evangelizes as they wish they would. I don't pray as much as I wish I did. I don't pray as much as I want and need to. I don't pray as effectively as I should. I wish I were more organized in my prayers. I wish I were more disciplined in my praying. But I think, I hope I'm seeing steady growth in this area. So I come to you today before this text as someone desiring to learn from this text as much as I speak on it. How does one advance in the discipline of prayer? How do you become a better prayer Well, prayer is fundamentally a learned behavior. I remember when I was a young believer and young in in pastoral ministry, I I would encounter people in prayer groups and and some would say, well, I'm not comfortable praying in a group. And I remember having a, a certain degree of judgmentalism about that. Like, well, why can't you? You're a Christian. You should be able to pray. And the more I've learned about prayer, the more I'm sympathetic that prayer has to be learned. You don't just naturally pray i'm sure you're aware that we only have record of the 12 disciples requesting that jesus instruct them about one thing and what was that they said lord teach us to pray now the reason they must have said that is they heard jesus pray and his prayers were much different than theirs they saw how he prayed that how he prayed was much different than they did There is much to learn in that simple request. They acknowledged that they needed to grow in their praying. These were the disciples. And I think we can identify ourselves with them as well. I trust that's true of us all. Namely, that we recognize God can be sought for instruction on how to talk to him appropriately and better. And we need to be taught how to pray better. We need to improve in our prayer lives. Of all the disciplines and delights of the Christian life, prayer rises to the top with respect to requiring faith. Have you ever thought about this? We're speaking to someone who cannot be perceived by the senses and that demands the purest kind of faith. We're not pretending to talk about someone who we're pretending is there. We're talking to the invisible God. And since prayer is a learned behavior, a learned discipline... And it's learned by imitation. We can grow in our prayer life by studying and imitating those who pray well, and such is the case with Paul. That's why the title today is Pray Like This. I think we see the content of Paul's prayer, the heart of Paul's prayer, what informed and motivated Paul's prayer, and that should generate a certain kind of improvement in our own prayer lives. So let's pray like this. Let's pray like Paul. He has two significant prayers in this epistle, in Ephesians, one here and one in chapter 3. And we'll come back to this, uh, obviously we'll come back to this topic again when we get to chapter 3. And the reason is that since prayer is a learned practice, we can learn how to pray better and improve our praying by seeing what he does, how he does it, and frankly just imitating it. So I want us to dive into this, this study and next. We'll only get two of these three points in our outline done today. We're going to look at three intentional inclusions for improved prayer. Three intentional inclusions for improved prayer. Now, there's an assumption in that uh, proposition, and that is that all of us want to improve our prayer lives. I I trust if you know the Lord Jesus, you want to pray more, you want to pray better, you want to pray more informed, How do we do that? This is going to be an absolute classroom for us as we go through this text. Three intentional inclusions, things that we include for improving or improved prayer. The first is in verses 15 and 16. Thankful awareness. Thankful awareness. What I mean by that is knowing and caring about the spiritual health of others. Knowing and caring about the spiritual health of others others. Verse 15. For this reason too, stop right there, for this reason goes back to that long sentence from verses 3 to 14 where Paul highlights all of the spiritual blessings that we enjoy as believers. Because we enjoy these blessings as believers, Jew and Gentile together, for that reason, that shared faith, having heard of the faith in the lord jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints i do not cease to give thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers he's obviously connecting his prayer that he's about to pray back to the list of spiritual blessings that his his friends in asia minor his friends in ephesus were enjoying along with every other believer and that's why he says for this reason that's loaded with the content of the spiritual blessings that we have There's something important about there. If we are informed by the spiritual blessings that are ours and other believers, that will generate and motivate a certain kind of spiritual awareness about the people we're praying for. It puts our mind in a spiritual dimension, spiritual mindset. He wrote similarly to the Colossians, Colossians 1.3, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. He talks about faith and love in that passage just as he does here in Ephesians 1. Now look at the basic grammar of the sentence because it's a a sentence that has an inclusio. There's a section in the middle that actually separates the the main subject from the, the verb, He says, I, and then he goes down to verse 16, verse 15, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That's the functional structure of the sentence. I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Let's talk about that, that basic part of the sentence first. Paul was thankful to God for the Ephesians, or if you take this as a circular letter, all of the believers in Asia Minor on that postal route that went up through modern-day Turkey. He was thankful for them, the believers there. And the thankfulness was motivated, motivated him rather, to pray for his friends. Can I ask you a simple question? For whom do you find your heart gravitating toward to pray for? For whom do you pray? Ask another way. Who has the privilege of their names being mentioned at heaven's court from your lips regularly, daily? When you come to the throne of God, who has the privilege of your thoughtfulness while you're there talking to the Almighty? Do you pray for your family? Do you pray for your friends? Do you pray for your enemies? Those with whom you have conflict? Your coworkers? Do they have the privilege of their names being uttered at heaven's court because they work with you? Your neighbors, because they live by you, unbelievers that you know, believers that you are you share Christ with, missionaries. How about this? Governing officials. Do you pray for governing officials with whom you disagree with politically? Paul actually commanded that when he told Timothy in 1 Timothy, pray for those who are the governing officials. And and Peter said, submit to the governing officials and bring them before the throne of grace. Here, though, Paul's focus is on believing friends, other Christians that he knows in another area They're in Asia Minor. In the middle of the sentence, remember he says, the sentence is, I do not cease giving thanks for you. He's thankful for them. He's thankful for the work God has done in them. In the middle of that, there are two observations about his readers. Why is he thankful? What motivated his thankfulness? Well, the two observations are recognitions of the two supernatural affections that God generated in their hearts. Look in the middle of the verse now having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ which exists among you. Let's talk about that for a minute. So remember, his, he says, the sentence is, I do not cease giving thanks. In the middle of the sentence, he tells us why. First of all, he's heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among them. Now, as Paul taught in uh, verses 4 through 6 of chapter 1, faith in Jesus is the result of God's sovereign grace in predestination in electing choice. But as we noted, this is very much, uh, uh, this very much rather involves our faith, our giving our faith. And I love the way he says that the faith in the, you, I've heard of the faith you have in the Lord Jesus. Yes, God generates that faith, but the, the, the apostle and the Lord Jesus sometimes accents the fact that you believed in the truth. Those aren't on opposite ends of the pole. They're train tracks that run in parallel. Yes, God gives faith, but Paul is also thankful to them for believing. This was not faith in faith. It was not faith in a plan. It was not some kind of behavior modification. Look what it says. Faith in the Lord Jesus. For the third time, Paul refers to Jesus as Lord, and he's only 15 verses in. The Lord Jesus. This indicates the kind of relationship we have. It's that of a slave to a master. The reputation of these Ephesian believers was impressive. They were following Jesus as their master and the director of their lives. Their reputation were to be slaves of Jesus as their Lord and master. Now, let's just remember that Paul is basing his prayer on their reputation. You know, I I, I thought all week about this and I I thought if someone were to visit our church, a missionary, a a visiting preacher or whoever, and they were to leave and they were to pray about us, would they hear or experience the fact that the believers here in our church were slaves of Jesus, our Lord, honoring him, obeying him, Worshipping Him, following Him, having heard of the faith, your belief in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you. It's, it's your reputation. Secondly, He says, a second motivation, and your love for all the saints. Don't let this little phrase get lost on you. This is a significant, massive declaration. Later in chapters 3 and 4, Paul will bring us back to how big a deal this really is. For these believers to have a comprehensive love for all the saints, what he says meant that their love crossed the Jew-Gentile divide. You love all the saints, not just the ones who are Jews if you're Jews, not just the ones who are Gentiles if you're Gentiles. You, Jews and Gentiles, have a love for all the saints, Jews and Gentiles. And remember, the Jews and the Gentiles had a hateful aversion to one another. I mean, think about it, they had different diets. Never was this more apparent to me than when I was in Israel one time and I, I, uh, uh, there were two shops right next to each other on, uh, in Old Town Jerusalem and, and a friend of mine went over to a shawarma shop and he got a, a falafel or with some, some meat on it and, and I went to the bagel shop next door and I got a bagel with cream cheese and we, you know, I'm not, you're not going to believe this, we sat at the same table to have lunch together. This has never happened to me before. And I felt whap on my shoulder. And a little bitty old Jewish man with a rolled up newspaper whacked me and said, unclean, unclean! And I, I didn't know what I'd done. Well, I was at the table with cheese and meat at the same table. And if you know anything about Jewish diet, that is, that's a bad, bad deal. So we, I wasn't even eating them together. We were just at the same table. Well, Multiply that times a thousand. The Jews ate differently than the Gentiles. It was almost impossible for them to share a meal without crossing up their dietary rules and laws. They had different diets, they had different calendars, they had different holidays, they had different weekends than each other, they had different ways that they dressed. Jews and Gentiles had different languages, different places of worship, synagogues and pagan temples. They had different ways that their children played, different neighborhoods, different places they could each shop, different greetings, different goodbyes. They were different in every imaginable way, and yet they came together with faith in Christ. And Paul says, I've heard you love each other. That's a big deal. Add to that the reality that for centuries the Gentiles had encroached on Israel's real estate. Rome was now dominating the Jews, persecuting them in their own land through exorbitant taxation and religious persecution. And eight years from the writing of Ephesians, eight years from now, Rome will come and destroy Jerusalem. They hated each other. Paul says, I've heard you love all, all the saints, Jew and Gentile. Some of us a few years ago took a Reformation tour and we stopped at the Arch of Titus in Rome, which was erected in a- AD 81, 11 years after the raid on Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And on that arch is a depiction, a relief. Of a menorah with the Jews being taken, tens of thousands were taken captive back to Rome as slaves. So when Paul remarks that these believers had a love about and for all the saints, both Jew and Gentile, it was obviously a work that God had done in them. Listen, this is not the time for this, but contrary to the current infatuation that many evangelicals have with critical race theory. Biblical Christianity does not elevate a person's race to their identity. Instead, biblical Christianity understands our identity is that of sinners saved by grace regardless of what color your skin is. So put that together. Verse 15. Because you've had all spiritual blessings, Jew and Gentile, for that reason, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, you have a slave master relationship with Jesus that I've heard about, and your love for all the saints, you are not discriminating, you are not racist. I do not cease to give thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Is that powerful? Who he prayed for and how he prayed. Now, before we leave Paul's motivations to pray for these believers, I think it would be helpful to stop, take a step back, and consider again the occasion for this epistle and the context of Paul's praying. Paul is in jail in Rome. He's under house arrest, but he's certainly imprisoned. He describes himself in chapter 6 as being in chains. But the worst of circumstances were no hindrance to Paul's prayer life. Can you just let that sink in? The worst of Paul's circumstances did not hinder his prayer life. And when he mentions his being imprisoned and he mentions his prayers, <laughs> There's no mention of his request to get out of jail. He doesn't say, please pray that I will be delivered from jail. Instead, you know what he says? I'm focused on your well-being, spiritual well-being, the well-being of my friends, pure spiritual selflessness. Turn over to chapter 6 for a moment. I want you to see this. Ephesians 6, verse 18 as he's finishing this letter, he comes back to the subject of prayer. He says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. There's our phrase again, Jews and Gentiles. And pray on my behalf that I will get out of jail and experience freedom. No, that's not what he says. Pray on my behalf that... Utterance may be given me in the opening of my mouth to make known the, with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Do you see what's going on here? Paul doesn't ask for his difficult circumstances to be alleviated He asks that he's faithful in his difficult circumstances. He doesn't ask to get out of jail. He asks that he would be faithful to the gospel while he's in jail. When he considers how the readers might perceive his predicament, he prays like this Turn back over to chapter 3. It's important to stitch these together. Chapter 3, Ephesians 3, verse 13. Therefore, I ask you, regarding his being an ambassador in chains and being in prison, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf. Here's the leader of modern Christianity in their day who's in jail. Don't lose heart. For they are for your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Father. I'm in chains. I'm in prison. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives his name, that he would grant you... Whoa, stop. I'm in jail. I'm in prison. My prayer is about You Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think, even get me out of jail. According to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, amen. I can't wait till we get to that prayer in a few periods of time. Paul's undesirable circumstances did not prevent him from faithful prayer for others. You know, sometimes, sometimes I think we pray very diligently that God would deliver us from difficult circumstances that he has actually placed us in for our growth and his glory. That doesn't mean you can't pray for the alleviation of a difficult circumstance. Of course you can. But I think we learned something from Paul here. He wanted to be faithful in the difficulty before he wanted relief from the difficulty. His focus In his prayers, when he was in prison, was for others. There's something to that. The second intentional inclusion for improved prayer. Thankful awareness, knowing and caring about the spiritual health of others. But secondly, concentrated supplication, to gain a greater understanding of God Himself. Now, before we jump into this, let me connect these two. You cannot pray for those people that you do not know. It, it, look, I appreciate the, the the child who says, God bless all the missionaries in the world. And God smiles at that kind of passion and prayer. But Paul prayed very specifically for people whose faces he knew. And those who didn't, he prayed specifically for them still in their spiritual growth. Do you know and care about the spiritual health of others? If you do, that's going to launch you into knowing about that. And then here, number two, in concentrated supplication, you will know how and what to pray for them. Verse 17. Here's the, here's the substance of the prayer request. Ready? Having given thanks for them, here's what he prays. That... The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. And if I can borrow from what we're going to do in our next study, let me give you a, a translation I prefer here, okay? Uh, picking up at verse 16, making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of insight and revelation in the knowledge of him since because the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. We'll come back and talk about that in, in, the, in our next study. But know that this is another one of those marginal notes where the margin tells you there's an alternate translation that I think actually grabs the attention of the Greek a little bit better. I don't think he prays in verse 18 that, your heart, that your, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I think he prays because they have been enlightened. That's the first 14 verses. We'll come back to that in our next study. Right now, though, the focus of his prayer is that God will give a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Look at the stack of descriptors about God in verse 17. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ... Now, that should sound familiar. Look back at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed, verse 3, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Not the first time he's talked about the fact that God is Jesus' Father which makes Jesus his Son just... Stacking up our understanding of the Trinity, and then he calls him the Father of Glory. What is the Father of Glory? What does that mean? Well, remember the Greek word for glory, doxi, is is really light. It's, the essence is is revealing light. Probably the best way to understand this is in Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four. He talks about the God of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. And then verse 6, 2 Corinthians 4, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, that's the creation, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I think that's in mind when he talks to the Ephesians here. He's the father of glory, meaning the father of revelation that we can tie into, we can understand, we can be exposed to. Now there's a bit of a debate here that I want us to enter into ever so briefly. And that is um, in verse 17, that word spirit. Some translations have that capitalized And some translations have it, like the New American Standard, with a lowercase. And the question is, the pneuma here is, if this spirit is our spirit, just our disposition, our inclination, or if this is the Holy Spirit. And I read commentary after commentary this week who lands on one uh, side or the other of this. There are compelling and convincing reasons on both. If you land on one side or the other, neither side is going to make you in error But I land where the New American Standard did, that this is our inclination, our spirit, not the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you why. He requests that the spirit be given. And yet, in the previous passage, he said the spirit was already given to us as a pledge. So it doesn't make sense to me that after saying the Spirit has been given to you as a pledge, already given to you, that the Spirit would now be given to you. So I I think it's better to read this as an inclination. This is our spirit, our our leaning, that we would be given an inclination, a a desire, a a spirit of wisdom and revelation. The central request of Paul's prayer is for a spirit of, Of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. That knowledge of Him, by the way, will be expanded in our next study in verses 18 to 23. When's the last time the central desire of your prayer for another believer was this request that they would have a spirit of wisdom? In the inclination of their heart to know God better. Look at what it says. That you might grow, that you might be strengthened, that you might have a spirit of revelation and wisdom in the knowledge of Him. This is a big Greek word for knowledge the true knowledge, the real knowledge. There's nothing wrong about praying for the physical dimensions of a person's life. Listen, if I was going into open-heart surgery, I would want you to pray for my physical well-being, all right? I think we all, there's, there's nothing wrong with paying, praying for, for someone's leg or, or, or head or ear or hair or you name it. Nothing wrong with that. But do we equally pray? that the people we love would grow in their knowledge of God. How often is our focus on the health and growth of a person's eternal soul? And how often is our desire that they would grow in the knowledge of God? I think Paul's example here should cause us to make significant adjustments in the content of our prayers In fact, if you read Paul's epistles all the way through his letters in the New Testament, his prayers are always about matters of the soul. We intuitively and instinctively pray about things that are most important to us. We pray about what we truly desire. So if you're like me, you hear Paul pray here, And you probably sense the need for some adjustments in how we pray for others. Paul's great desire is that knowing God from the knowledge of God would guide and steer his friends' lives. Is that our prayer? Parents, how do you pray for your kids? I'm sure you pray for their salvation, their well-being. Do you ever just beg God that they would know him better. Because if we know God better, that touches and changes everything. Knowing God is to be the Christian's deepest heart longing. Jeremiah understood that. Jeremiah 23, excuse me, 9, 23, and 24 Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts. He assumes we're going to brag about something. Everybody brags about something. If you're going to boast, let him boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Is knowing God the desire of your heart? Is knowing God the prayer request for your friends? Let's listen to some friends about knowing God. You know this well, A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. How are you praying for those you love? That they would have accurate understandings of God? J.I. Packer, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place in their own accord, end quote. Don Carson To know God is to be transformed and thus is to be introduced to a life that could not otherwise be experienced. And I love this, David Wells. Listen carefully. This is where we're going to find some practical application. Wells says, The saving knowledge of God is not the result of human search for him of the human search for him, or of building up logical inferences to him from the natural order, still less of erecting such access to him through experience. But, here it is. Knowing God is of his self-disclosure to us in his Son and through his word. I think that's what Paul is requesting for his friends in Asia Minor. That they would know God, the revelation of God would come. Where is God revealing Himself? In His Word. That's where the revelation comes from. How does God grant the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him? Spurgeon helps us. If you wish to know God, he says, you must know His Word. If you wish to perceive his power, you must see how he works by his word. If you wish to know his purpose before it comes to pass, you can only discover it by his word. We can say it this way. Paul's request to give the Ephesians a spirit of wisdom and a revelation of the knowledge of God is tantamount to asking God to give the Ephesians a a desire to know and study Scripture In his excellent book, it's really occupied my mind this last year, The Identity and Attributes of God, Terry Johnson writes this. Listen very carefully. Why do we need to study about God rather than just intuit the truth? We need to study because thoughts about God are inescapable. And errant thoughts about God are inevitable. We are all theologians. We all conceive of God as a particular sort of being who stands in a certain kind of relation to the world. This is true for all people, Christian and non-Christian, Protestant and Roman Catholic, Presbyterian and Baptist. Our conceptions may be deliberate and conscious or subconscious and accidental, yet we all surely have them. Everyone has opinions about God. The question is, will our concepts of God be correct or erroneous? Will they be true or will they be false? The answer to those last two questions is whether or not our conceptions about the knowledge of God come from his word. If not, Psalm 50 said, we'll commit the sin that he indicts the people of when he says, you thought I was just like you. Now that's just the first part of this prayer. We're gonna have to put a comma on to come back to the, the last part of his prayer. We'll stitch it all together in our next study, but let me give you a few takeaways. At least these are what the Lord have, has really impressed on my heart, okay? One, two, three, four, I have Five. First of all, the content of your prayers reveals the priorities of your values. Ouch. The content of our prayers reveals the priorities of our values. We pray about what's most important to us. What are you praying about? Is it just physical? Temporal issues? Secondly, circumstances need not prevent us from faithful prayer. Paul's in prison. Circumstances need not prevent us from faithful prayer. Paul spent, it seems like, no energy asking for people to pray that he would get out of prison. And all of his energy was praying for their spiritual well being. That does not mean, does not mean you cannot pray for alleviation from suffering, alleviation from difficult circumstances. But it should mean that with, with, with that, we add the inclusion of, Lord, make us faithful in this difficult circumstance. Thirdly, our most generous prayers for other believers is that they would know God and know him better. Our most generous prayers for other believers is that they would know God and know him better. Fourth, this picks up on number one. The most helpful prayers are for another's eternal soul, not their temporary bodies. The most helpful prayers are for another's eternal soul, not their temporary bodies. Yes, you can pray for their bodies. If I'm going into surgery, please pray for me. But praying for their eternal soul is, is far more important. And can I ask you one question finally, takeaway? Do we want to know God better? We've looked at this from the standpoint of praying for others, but if, if someone's praying this for you, do you have the desire, or is God answering their prayer by you desiring to know him better? Do you want to know God better? not just behavior modification, not just coming to church, not just going to camp. Do you want to know him better? That's the substance of what Paul prayed. That's what, that's what he wanted to see in the Ephesians' lives happen, and I think if he were here today, that's what he would want to see in our lives, is that we would have a desire to know God better, and we would know God better. That's, that changes how we parent. That changes how we have care group. That changes how we fellowship. That changes how we have dinner conversations. Do we desire to know him better? What informs that? Don't even try to take notes. But we'll come to our third theological purposefulness Comprehension of the gospel details. You want to know how to know God better? We're going to look at what it means to know the hope of His calling, to know the wealth of His inheritance, to know the greatness of His power, which even breaks down further in Christ's resurrection and exaltation, in Christ's authority in the universe, and in Christ's headship over the church. He doesn't leave us to guess what He wants us to know and be and do and how He wants us to pray. What good news. And we'll be able to come back to number three in our next study.